Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling Podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, Explorers. I'm Pam Laricchia, and it's the 26th of May, 2020, as I record this intro. This week's episode is a recast of episode two, 10 Questions with Pam Sarushian. New listeners are finding the podcast all the time, but it can be a bit of a challenge to tackle the backlist of over 200 episodes. That said, there are some true gems in there, and this is one of them. Pam is a veteran unschooling mom of three now adult daughters. In our conversation, she shares so many incredible insights from her experience. She talks about the early years of unschooling, tips on navigating sibling conflicts and reluctant spouses, how she worked through her bias against TV by exploring her husband's love for it. And we also dive into her well-known essay, Economics of Restricting TV Watching of Children, about the law of diminishing marginal utility. Prepping to share this episode, I found some notes I made a while ago when I was reading the book Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much, and how it wove together so clearly with Pam's essay. Here's a quote from the book written by Sentil Malanathan and Endar Shafir. Scarcity is not just a physical constraint. It is also a mindset. When scarcity captures our attention, it changes how we think, whether it is at the level of milliseconds, hours, or days and weeks. By staying top of mind, it affects what we notice, how we weigh our choices, how we deliberate, and ultimately what we decide and how we behave. When we function under scarcity, we represent, manage, and deal with problems differently. It's really fascinating stuff. The scarcity mindset can affect everyone, not just children and not just around TV watching, but it is a great example and one that often comes up in unschooling circles. And you'll find the link to Pam's essay in the show notes. So even if you've listened to this episode in the past or way in the past, I strongly encourage you to listen in again. I suspect you'll find yourself making all sorts of cool connections and maybe even gaining some new insights and ideas. Have fun! As a personal update, we were just talking in the Living Joyfully Network online community about aha moments we've had this month, and I shared mine from this week. So here's what I wrote. This month, I peeled back another layer on the value of mindset and the lens through which I choose to look at my days. Even when nothing actually changes, the things on my plate are still there. When I shift my lens, everything changes. I can mentally walk myself from stress and frustration, my have-tos, to anticipation and excitement that I get to. I just need to give myself the space and grace to do it. I'm always learning. I'd been feeling rather overwhelmed the last couple of weeks with things I wanted to do things I expected myself to get done as soon as possible, but no matter how hard I tried to accomplish them, they kept slipping away. Without thinking, my first instinct is to scold myself and to push harder. It often takes me a couple of go-rounds before I notice what's happening and recognize that it's time to stop and that this isn't working for me. I'm just spiraling deeper into unhelpful frustration. 
From there, it took a couple of days to release those expectations I had of myself and revisit my mindset. But truly, it's like night and day. And all that's changed is the lens through which I'm looking at my days and the things on my plate. So before we get to my conversation with Pam, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon. I deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support not only lets me know that you enjoy the show and want it to continue, it allows me to spend time creating episodes each week and to keep the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash exploring unschooling. And now let's dive into my conversation with Pam. Hi everyone, I'm Pam Larickia from livingjoyfully.ca and today I'm here with Pam Sharushian. Hi Pam. Hello. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Pam is a longtime unschooling mom of three girls who are now adults. And lucky for us, she's continued to stay actively involved in the unschooling community. She's also a professor of economics and statistics. And I have 10 questions for you today, Pam. So let's dive in. Okay. <laughs> All right. First question. Jumping back uh, just a few years, how did you first hear about unschooling and what spurred you to begin exploring unschooling with your family? Well, it was a few years. My oldest daughter is 31 and my middle daughter is 28 and my youngest will be 25 in a couple of weeks. Wow. So yes, it's been a while. Um, my kids were, my older two were in a school. We had searched around, changed schools, tried to find a school that I was happy with and had succeeded the best we could, but not entirely. Um, I was looking for sort of like holistic schooling, not, not worksheets and things like that, you know, like just um, a more open type school. And we mm -hmm. finally ended up in a public school that didn't have any grades or assignments or homework or tests. And it was really quite lovely. And I think it was the very, very best we possibly could have found. And yet I was pretty unhappy with it. And I was constantly complaining to one of my sisters about the school and I didn't like how they did this and I didn't like that. And she looked at me one day and said, you know, it's never going to be the way you want it. <laughs> and I said, oh, you're right. Like, it's impossible. There, it's never going to be what I'm looking for. And at the same time, my older daughter was um, nine and had, was doing very, very well. Everybody loved her. She was doing great in school. There was no problems or anything. Um, but I had started to notice at that age that her unbridled enthusiasm for learning and stuff was kind of starting to be dulled. And my, my younger daughter, who was in an open classroom, no grade, no grade levels, no grades, anything like that, was just frustrated and bored out of her mind. She was highly, highly talented in reading and writing and was being way too limited in the school, you know, the classroom. There wasn't enough for her to do. And she was just bored and unhappy. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was according even to her teacher. You know, she was just, the teacher was telling me, well, there's not enough here that we can offer yep. her. So um, they got chicken pox. And <laughs> it was in the spring. And all three of the kids got chicken pox. And they were out of school and out of school. 
but they weren't very sick. And we had a fabulous time. And it was April. And um, as the time came for them to be well enough to go back to school, because of budget cuts, our schools no longer have school nurses. We have school health clerks. And I would take the kids into the school and show her that they still had little pox on them. And I'd say, I don't think they really should come in. They might still be contagious. And the health clerk would say, oh, well, okay, keep them home. And so four weeks went by, five weeks went by, six weeks went by. (laughs) We were towards the end of May by that time, and they hadn't gone back to school because we were just having too much fun. And um, pretty soon there was one week of school left, and my older daughter wanted to go back for that one week to finish up the school year and do all her fun things. And so she did. But in the meantime, I was online thinking, how can we just keep this going? This is so much better. So I got online. America Online had just started up. um, And so I got on America Online and um, I found homeschoolers. And lo and behold, there was a little one-day unschooling conference being held almost in my neighborhood (laughs) that week. Wow. So the kids went to school that week and I went to a conference and then school was over and then they never went back. And my oldest daughter, Roya, wanted to go back, but I offered her the option to try it for six weeks and then decide. And at the end of about a week or two, she had said, oh, no way. Do I ever want to go back? This is so much better. And we discovered a support group that was super fun, and the kids were putting on plays and having a blast, and we were going to the beach. We live in Southern California. We were going to the beach every day, and we went to just all kinds of fun things. So um, in the meantime, I was on AOL talking to all the homeschoolers that I found on there. Those days, this was before the in the United States, the religious right got really into homeschooling. And it was just when they were just getting started and there were a lot of unschoolers. Homeschooling was unschooling then. Like people didn't use two different words for it. Um, People at that time were John Holt followers. um, And he had recently passed away, but he had spoken here in my area. And lots of people I knew had seen him speak. And that was the whole um, atmosphere of homeschooling was that if you're not fully unschooling already, then you're just on your way there. So I was pretty immersed in an unschooling world almost from the very first day. Um, And it it resonated with me completely. It was exactly what I'd been thinking about. I just hadn't occurred to me that the kids didn't have to go to school. So (laughs) that was exactly my situation too. (laughs) So we did, we Mm -hmm. just didn't go to school anymore. And we just pretty much dropped any kind of schooling right from the get-go and um, had a blast and never looked back you know they never they never wanted to go to school and my youngest daughter never went at all and every year I'd ask her do you want to go to school this year because you know you might want that experience just a little bit just want to see what it's like and she would say no I don't want to I'm fine I talked to all my friends I know they all go to school I don't I have no interest in it and you know she had a lot of kids a lot of friends who went to school and she just never wanted to. And in the year that it would have been her senior year in high school, I said, this is your last chance. You will never get a chance <laughs> to do this social thing that, that you know, society thinks is critical and essential for every kid. You'll never get a chance to do it. 
you'll never get that chance again. And she was like, I just don't need it. I don't want it. Stop trying to talk me into it. <laughs> I wasn't really perfectly happy for her not to do it. But I wanted to make sure she knew that it was her choice. That it was an option. Yeah. That she, she had made the choice that I, had, I didn't want later for her to say, I never even got any experience of it. Yeah. Because the other kids had had it and they knew what, what it was like. You know? That leads nicely into our next question. Um, when they're not having the school experience, I wanted to talk a little bit about what learning looks like with unschooling. So when, when any of your children were actively pursuing an interest, what are some of the things that you did to help support that exploration? And with three of them, how did you weave together pursuing all their interests? Well, um, their interests looked like play, and they mostly played. Um, mm-hmm. And they were interested in, for example dressing up their stuffed animals <laughs> so yeah <laughs> buy fabric remnants or find old clothes that they could cut up and give them scissors and needles and thread and tape and fabric paint and let them go at it and my my job was to provide materials transportation and and some cleanup time so that they would have more room to do it um so a lot of time when they were younger was spent with a, just a ton of pretend play, acting out um, with either stuffed animals or we had a big dollhouse they played with a lot or other kinds of dolls or, um, or just pretend play. They played Star Trek a lot where they made all kinds of little props to go with it out of just cardboard and tape. And that was an ongoing game that they played for forever. And yeah. then um, they uh, they liked to watch TV, and they had a lot of shows that they were really into. And so back in those days, we had VHS tapes, and it was my job to remember to record them. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> was a task for me. And to help them find them, it wasn't as easy as it is now. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and to you know make sure that they didn't miss episodes of the shows they were really into. Ironically, one of them was Arthur, in which he goes to school, and there's a lot of school school stuff involved in that. Yep. <laughs> Arthur, and, and I have tapes full of Bill Nye the Science uh, Guy. Loved it. And where in the world is Tom in San Diego? They played yeah. on the computer. We had, had one computer, so that was, you know, an issue to take turns. And um, they played a lot of games. Um, they tried to share. They played together. You know, they played like Oregon Trail. And then they kind of integrated the computer game into pretend play at the same time. So sometimes they'd play Oregon Trail, but then they'd be kind of like acting out, playing pretend, the same stuff that one of them would be on the computer playing it, telling them what was happening. And they dressed up <laughs> a lot. Um, they didn't do a lot of classes or anything like that um, at that stage. They did, they did when they were older. Um, they did like, especially my oldest daughter liked to sign up for a lot of things. And, you know, we live in the Los Angeles area. We have a ton of museums and ev- events and festivals and things like that. But really what I remember looking back on those days is them playing music and dancing and singing a lot and going to the beach and spending many, many, many long, long, long hours playing in the park or 
you know, swimming in the, we have a swimming pool. They would swim in the swimming pool sometimes eight or nine or 10 hours, you know, at a stretch. Mm -hmm. I would bring them food and put it on the side of the pool so they could come up to the edge of the pool and grab something to eat. So much for that idea that you're not supposed to swim after eating because they were swimming while eating. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> they were eating and swimming at the same time. Um, you know, we had a dog. They'd play with the dog. It was a lot like probably what a typical weekend might look like for kids in school, except we just did it all week long. And, um, you know, the difference on the weekends and the evenings is that my husband was home and then he played with them. They did play some sports. They played soccer, so they were on soccer teams. Um, but otherwise, you know, I really, there wasn't anything particularly planned or anything like that. You know, it was more a matter of like just the flow of every day. You know, we cooked, we ate, yeah. we went here and there, we visited friends, friends came over. We were busy and the days went by really fast. <laughs> well, and I find that's, that is one of looking back those are the times you you remember because that that is one of, one of the really wonderful things about unschooling is the time that we all actually get to spend together, and and that in turn um, really strengthens our our families connections and relationships. Oh yeah, which was something that I wasn't I wasn't really expecting because when I first was looking at unschooling, you know, it was to replace school, so you know the focus was on the learning but soon enough what the beauty really came to be was the connections and the relationships um so i thought i would ask just um cuz i know this question comes up quite a bit especially when they're siblings um is helping them figure out ways to move through moments when things get more challenging when somebody's uh, angry uh somebody's frustrated with the game or with each other um do you have some tips or remember some of the ways that you helped them move through conflicts well, when they I, were younger? I don't know that I did the best job of that. <laughs> I know. So we I all just do what we can. <laughs> you looking back now, how I think I could have done better, and that is, you know, to, to um, just pay attention really closely and head things off when you see frustrations starting at the very, very beginning. Try to offer more because frustration often comes from a scarcity of some kind of resource, you know, both of them want the same stuffed animal or both of them want the same piece of fabric or they both want to play the piano or one wants to play the piano while the other one wants to watch TV right next to it. Or, you know, a lot of times uh, conflicts arise from that kind of um, wanting something that conflicts with what somebody else wants. And so trying to mm -hmm. offer more right away before they dig in their heels and they're already engaged in some sort of standoff, you know, so if you see a kid eyeing the piano and another kid's watching TV, you know, before they open the piano and start playing it and start having a fight over who's going to get to, you know, have that space, head that off really fast. And that requires paying really close attention um, and being pretty in tune with your own kids so that you sense what's going on before it really sort of breaks out. And so that's the biggest thing to do. And then the other one is sometimes as they get older to stay out of it, you know, especially not with little kids, but with much older kids is to let them use the skills they've developed and figure out how to work it out, you know, while you're kind of paying attention and, you know, making sure they are. Um, yeah, I got too involved, I think, as they got older, I stayed too involved. Yeah. And I think they were they would have been better off if I let them work things out a little bit more. But then, you know, you never know who, who's listening. I don't know who's listening. Some people are, they stay out of it too much and they just have this attitude of, you know, let the kids work it out and they need the advice to get involved a little more and a little earlier. And 
other people are too involved. And, you know, for me, it was a, it was a changing process over all those years. And my, Mm -hmm. my three daughters are still extremely close. They are definitely each other's best friends and um, hang around together almost every single day. They talk to each other constantly and they still fight. And (laughs) I now at this point need to stay out of it entirely (laughs) because they're all grown ups and I don't need to be around at all, but it's still kind of hard for me. You know, I still kind of want to get in there and solve the problems for them. But um, I think when you have that intense of relationships and you're together that much, that some level of conflict is really inevitable. And when, when they were going through different stages where one kid would be harder to get along with or two kids just were like, you know, having trouble with each other, my solution to that is to give them more space, not to try to force it, but to give them more space from each other. Um, have, have one visiting friends much more often, let them do overnighters somewhere else and give the kid who's having problems with them a little more, you know, opportunity to get over it and relax. And um, also having friends over helps to change the dynamics. A lot of times they'd get caught up in some kind of conflict and then they'd kind of make up, but then that same conflict would just keep rearing its head. And having friends come over and change all the dynamics of how everybody's interacting would sometimes kind of break that cycle and then they'd be better off. And another thing is take one of the kids with you and go somewhere, um, you know, separate, separate them in a happy way, not separate them because you guys can't get along. So you have to be separated, but you know, take one of the kids and, you know, we can't do this. We couldn't do this in those days, but these days you can say, you know, let's go to the grocery store, but stop at Starbucks or something and make it, make it a fun trip. (laughs) Um, you know, those days it was like, stop it, stop and get an ice cream cone or something like that. Um, so that the kids could have breathing space from each other. And and having more space even in your house helps a lot, I think, because if they have their own space they can retreat to that really just is theirs and that the other kids can't um, go in and, and just interrupt them, I think that can really, really help. You know, I have I have two pretty outgoing extroverted kids and one very introverted. And for her to have her own space was really critical in everybody getting along because she needed downtime way more than the other two did. So she needed to be able to get in there and, you know, relax and, and just be on her own sometimes for hours. Yeah. I found that to be a really uh, important thing here as well. I think we've got two out of three that are quite introverted and, just to be able to say, to say, you know, I've, this is enough, not even out loud, but just to realize for themselves, you know, this is kind of enough and have a place that they can go to uh, recoup themselves. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, because I thought what you were sharing was great. Um, in I found the same thing um, when, when you don't, you don't know, you don't know how much support they might need. And, and, and it's different for each child too, you know. Sometimes they want uh, lots of your support. Sometimes they prefer you to back off. Um, for me, the what helped the most really was was just looking to them to see uh, what their reactions were. Yep. You know, like like you said, some people may be needing one kind of advice and somebody else the opposite. Uh, it boils down to you know looking at your own child and yourself and figuring out. Um, 
what is working in the moment best for them and paying attention because that changes over time too, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, it changes a lot. And also, like, not don't keep doing something that's not working. You know, don't, working. Yeah, don't think that just you know you're not doing enough and doing and doing more. Try something completely different. And, you know, try the opposite, for example, and see if that helps a little bit, you know, and if that helps a little bit, then do more of that. But if something's not working well, so for example, there was a time period where I just aggravated all their conflicts. If as soon as, mm-hmm. And they would tell me that even, you know, they, they yeah. would say like, mom, stay out of it. <laughs> so two things there. Yes, take their word for it, you know, and yeah. if it's not working, stop doing it and figure out some other alternative. And also, I guess the other one is to not think too much in terms of black and white. Like, it's not one thing or the other. It's try a little bit and see how it works and then try something else. But, you know, make, make small changes are okay. You know, just make a little change to how your reactions are. You know, and just make a little change to anything and see, watch them and see how that works. You know, see if that leads to, you know, anything slightly better. And then the other thing is, like, don't get upset. I think the thing I did the worst at was it upset me when they were having conflict with each other and that I was upset by it instead of just being accepting. And it's a matter of fact that when you have three kids growing up together that they're going to have conflicts. I wasn't that accepting of it. I had some kind of an ideal in my head that they would all get along all the time. And so I, I, I got my own emotions, got connected to that, you know, got attached to the idea. And that's just yep. not realistic. And so if the parents can just stay calm and confident that even the kids might be screaming horrible things at each other, you know, because they're kids and, or teens or whatever. And, you know, they, they can say really awful things sometimes, you know, they don't have the same meaning to them that they do necessarily to us. And so a kid turns around and screams at another kid, you know, I wish you were dead totally freaks out the parents to hear that kind of thing but that's not the same for them it's just an expression of the I have these extreme strong emotions that I don't know what to do with and I'm so angry and I'm trying to say the worst possible thing I can think of to say and if the parents can hear that kind of thing without getting their own emotions caught up then they can help them a lot more you know help them resolve the problems but you know if you immediately react to that and start going don't say that kind of thing it's so awful or you know like get your own emotions involved and you're part of the problem too. So, you know, kind of yeah, some it, perspective, you know, remember their kids. You know? Yep. <laughs> yes, I remember. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's move on to question number four. Um, I understand that just from, you know, uh, knowing you online and stuff um, that your husband was a bit wary of unschooling for the first few years, as was mine. So I was wondering if you'd share a little bit about how you approach that. Um, yes, we signed up for um, what in California, we have these sort of hybrid school programs at the very beginning of the year when, when you know, I didn't send them back to school in the fall. I He wasn't happy with the idea. So I signed up for a, one of these programs and we went to a meeting and there were about 30 credentialed teachers standing in the front of the room because it was a huge program. And we sat in this meeting and the teachers had, you know, introduced themselves and um, they each talked just for a few minutes. And like I said, in those days, it was all about John Holt and, and freedom and education. And so even though these were credentialed public school hired teachers, a lot of them talked the same way I did. And that wow. was incredibly reassuring to him. So 
Um, I mean, even there were three of them there who had written a book about different ways of learning. And they didn't call it unschooling because I don't really think almost anybody did then. Unschooling and homeschooling were just kind of the same word. Mm-hmm. But they called it interest-driven learning. And they had written a book about it. And, you know, they they talked about the benefits of supporting your kids' interests. And it all sounded really good. So that that got me over that initial hump of that you're not using curriculum, you're not doing lessons, you know, they're, they're not getting grades, because he did hear that. So that was really helpful. I don't know that everybody in the world is going to be able to find a bunch of credential teachers <laughs> to stand in front of their husband. But one of the things that you could find would be to find people at conferences, I think might be a similar kind of experience. And I think for the my experience of speaking at conferences, and I've spoken at, I don't know, maybe 30, 35 conferences now, um, is that the dads get the most out of it, the, the slightly skeptical ones, um, because they come later and talk to me and they say, that was, that was really helpful. I really understand now what's going on. And, you know, you're right. You're right. I, you're, I agree with you now. Like, that's 100% on. And um, I know that being at conferences and seeing that you're not alone, it's not just your crazy wife who, I, I know what my husband thought. It was another one of my big hobbies that I was going to take up and then a few years later drop. And um, he didn't want to do that to the kids. You know, he thought they needed the consistency of staying in school because he thought I would lose interest in a year or two. Um, And, you know, he could have been right. I don't know. I couldn't really (laughs) argue with that. All I could say is it just seems the right thing to do now. You know, school is not working well. And I just, this is the only thing that seems sensible. He hadn't done any of the reading I had done. I did, I did so much. Even back when I was like in college, I had read John Holt and um, Summerhill and things like that. You know, I was al- had already completely developed my idea of what ideal education and learning would be. I just didn't think you could just do it on your own and not school. <laughs> um, and he didn't either. And he was concerned about legalities because my husband is from Iran, um, and you know he already has to deal with issues here in the United States um, that the legal system is you know sort of very different, and he had to worry about that. Um, mm-hmm. But he, he gained confidence from being in a room full of, there was parents and kids who were all homeschooling. And then all these teachers that were all talking about how great free learning is <laughs> being out of the classroom and everything. Um, and he went to some unschooling conferences along the way. And I think those conferences made all the difference for him. He went to um, we had some unschooling conferences in San Diego, which is not too far from me. And he came down to the San Diego conferences and and met a lot of other unschooling families and heard some talks. And he he didn't have a conversion. You know, he was still sort of skeptical along the way. He he would sometimes make comments like, "Don't they need to learn this? Like, shouldn't they learn this? You know, shouldn't mm-hmm. they be?" like studying a little bit, you know, like especially as they started to get older into their young teens. Um, but the, on, other, on the other hand, he coaches um, soccer, and he was always coaching kids that were our kids' ages. <clears throat> and he was, let's say, very unimpressed <laughs> with the <laughs> behaviors, particularly of the kids mm-hmm. and with their attitudes. And he, our kids stood up really well in comparison. And so one of the things I kept telling him was, you know, the, the particular information and the skills and things that they would be taught in school, those are a lot less important than their personality and their character and their behavior. And, you know, those are the things that 
they're doing really well in. And so he, he once I remember he was concerned, like he'd heard my youngest daughter and her friend walking out from soccer practice and the other girl had been asking her things like, well, do you know where Belgium is? Or, you know, just factual kind of stuff. And he didn't think our daughter knew very much. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he was concerned. He said, don't you think they need to study geography or something? And, and then I, you know, I would just point out, I said, you know what, they know a lot. They know they've been playing where in the world is Carmen San Diego since they were little. You know, they knew, I said, they know a lot. She knows way more than that other girl. That girl just knew where Belgium was. That's it. That's why she asked yeah. her that. She asked, she knew where <laughs> that was, but she could have, Rosie could have turned around and asked her, where's Turkey or where's, Germany or you know she probably didn't know anything else and um mm-hmm. so I think interaction with other kids helped him a little bit but overall the only thing that really helped was him getting him to look at our own kids and look at what great people they were that they were good hearted you know generous kind kids and even that was difficult because he didn't really have a good concept of what was developmentally appropriate for kids, you know, like, so he didn't even have that information to know that, that, you know, this was like normal behavior or this was even better than normal behavior. He didn't know that much. So there was a waiting game, I guess, you know, where we just kind of waited and he enjoyed life with them and had, I mean, many times I said, you know, I think you have to trust me. You either have to go do all the research or you're going to have to trust me on this. You know, and, and he would just be, okay. And he it helped also he wasn't at all impressed with our school system here in the United States. Um, the school system that he'd grown up in, he went all the way through college, graduated from college, home in Iran. It was harsh and demeaning and, and just awful and, you know, horrifying to me. But to him, our schools were lax and didn't ask enough of the kids and didn't expect enough homework. And they went to school six days a week and went many more hours and had very harsh punitive punishments for not doing homework and not being prepared, um, physical punishments. And so when he looked wow. at our schools, he thought our schools were kind of goofy and silly anyway. So he didn't really think I don't, I, <laughs> he didn't think I was going to do much worse than the schools, you know, were doing. Yeah. He just thought the schools were so bad. But then I think at the beginning, he thought we were going to sort of switch over to the opposite, you know, out school the schools and, you know, make them study all day, every day. And I think he was kind of um, shocked and appalled that the, you're just going to the beach again, you know, <laughs> what did you guys do today? You know, I think he was bewildered, you know, for a while. And then he just started seeing the results and, you know, if just, you know, was patient enough and enjoys life enough and was positive and he started to see it, you know, and, and, um, started to see the negative results in other kids that he knew and started to see the good results in ours and then started to gain faith. And some years, I'd say like eight or nine, 10 years after we'd been in schooling, I overheard him on the phone talking to a friend and, and defending unschooling and telling him all about it. And, you know, well, we do this funny thing. We don't really homeschool. We do this thing called unschooling and, you know, the kids just learn and it's kind of amazing. And, <laughs> so even though he was still showing some skepticism and making some comments here and there, I think he was pretty well convinced, you know, by the, by, that by point, just the, yeah. the kids being there in front of him and seeing what they were doing. And then my kids all, because I teach at a college, my kids were able to utilize the college um, 
you know, they, they knew about college a lot, even when they were young, you know, they'd come to my class and sit in the back of the room and color while I lectured or, you know, they were very comfortable and familiar with college. And um, one day Roya was 13 or so, and she was walking around the college and she saw the ceramics studio and was like, can I do that? <laughs> you know, I want to yeah. go make pottery. And, and so, you know, I, we have that ability, you know, she signed up and went and took a ceramic class at 13 or 14. And, you know, um, that helped my husband to know that they were kind of connected to, to the, to the college environment that they were doing these college classes. I mean, they weren't going in and taking a college curriculum. They were taking what they were interested in. Just, they yeah. used it like it was a recreation department class, you know? Um, and, and that was, I think, reassuring that they could walk in there and do that and hold their own and, you know, do well and interact with the teacher and the other students and be okay. You know, so that helped a little bit. Um, I, it was just a play it, play it by ear as you go along through the years kind of thing for us, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that sounds, uh, pretty similar here too. I mean, we didn't have the, the lineup of teachers to go take them to, <laughs> nor did we have, um, the open colleges, yeah. you I know, think- close by to take that, but, but the, it was still the same, the same thing, you know, um, seeing the, the kind of, uh, people that they were becoming that, you know, the, the character and, and personalities and, and how well they understood themselves. Um, and and how that's you know longer picture more important than as you said the individual facts that they know where Belgium is or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I and I will say I wasn't above bad mouthing schools quite a bit so that because he didn't know how things happened in schools. He was yeah, that adds to yours. Yeah, and so I wasn't above that. You know, I would talk about why I hated the whole idea of what they were doing in schools. And schools were at right at that time, schools were sort of making the big shift here over to the extreme accountability movement. And so they were, they were boring and the kids were doing nothing but preparing for testing all the time. And, you know, the, the kinds of, there were no kids like on kids on his soccer teams, there were no kids that you would say, do you like school? And they would say, yes. You know, back when my kids were in school, it was a different era of educational, um, you know, philosophy mm-hmm. being implemented. And, but that changed, that it changed right then. And so um, the kids in school, when my kids were in school, they would probably say they liked school. You know, it was pretty fun. But not after that. After that, schools became just awful for kids. They were much, much worse. And, um, you know, it was all seat work. My kids were in classrooms that didn't have desks or anything like that. They just had yeah. all kinds of different places to sit and you know, hang out, they could go outdoors, they could, could be indoors, it was all kinds of stuff. But that just changed. And the schools just got awful. So they would sit like at a at a postseason soccer party. And, you know, my husband would sit there and talk to the kids on the soccer team. And they would just talk and talk and talk and talk about how awful school was, you know, and they hated everything about it. So that helped that you know he yeah. had contact <laughs> with these kids who were in school. And they're they didn't come across well, you know, they didn't love to learn. My kids talked about things they loved and these kids talked about things they hated. They hated. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Well, we better move on to question. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, One of the topics that regularly trips up uh, newcomer stun schooling 
as I've seen over the years, is TV watching. When they hear that experienced unschoolers don't restrict TV time, they're often taken aback, or what they'll call now is screen time. Uh, one, because it goes against all the conventional wisdom that we hear out there. And two, because of the behavior they see in their own children. They explain that they have restrictions because without them, their kids would do nothing but watch TV all day. And I have always loved your clear explanation of how restricting TV actually causes children to become more strongly attracted to it, the opposite of what the parent is trying to accomplish. So I was hoping you'd be able to take us through that. I will. I'll do that. Let me tell you something funny first, though. My my daughters had a friend. um, They had friends whose family restricted TV a lot and were very negative about it. They, they had a little tiny TV, and it was in the bedroom. It was in the parents' bedroom. So the only time the kids could watch TV was when the parents were going to allow it, and it was very little. <laughs> um, and they were very negative towards it. The father, they had one at all because the dad watched it, and the mom was really um, not nice about how the dad watched it. She would complain about it a lot in front of the kids, and, you know, mm-hmm. you know he's back in the bedroom watching TV again, you know, stuff like that. So. <laughs> That was the atmosphere there. And one night, um, one of the, our kids went back and forth between houses a lot. And one night, one of their kids was spending the night at our house. And they had turned the TV on to watch something. And then my daughter had fallen asleep. She often falls asleep still at almost 25 watching TV. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very common for her to do that. I would say almost daily. Um, so she had, they had laid down all their sleeping bags on the floor and they had the TV on and they were watching something and she'd already fallen asleep and the other girl was still awake, but I went to bed and I got up in the morning and the other girl was still sitting up watching the TV and she had both her hands up to her face. She was holding her own eyelids open. Oh my goodness. And I looked at her and said, what are you doing? And she said, ah, she just looked at me like in a daze and she said, I'm watching TV, <laughs> like, <laughs> and they were about, Aww. I would say, seven or eight years old at that time. They were little, wow. nine maybe. <laughs> and um, so I had that really, like, early extreme, not- you know, sort of like a notice given to me, like, this is what would happen if you didn't let them ever watch TV. And um, so that got me really thinking about it. But we had not restricted TV in our house because my husband grew up without any TV because he grew up without any electricity. Um, Mm -hmm. And he never saw colored television until he came to this country at the age of 23. And he loved television. He had no, um, he didn't have any of the anti-TV stuff to to him growing up. TV was still like it probably was in the forties and fifties in, you know, in North America was, he was still delighted by it. You know, it was like, he saw he'd been watching you know american tv shows back home in grainy black and white and came here and got to see them in good quality color and loved it so there was no um anti tvness in this house except from me um and there was a long time where i didn't want a big giant tv in the house you know when the kids were really little i'm talking about when my oldest daughter was like one or two you know um, where yeah. I thought, well, we would we would not have TV because it's not good for children and they shouldn't watch TV until they already know how to read and all this kind of stuff. And it caused nothing but conflict between my husband and myself because he was the one who really loved it. And every year he'd get a Christmas bonus or whatever they call it, a, a holiday bonus, and he'd say, I'm going to use it to buy a bigger TV. And I'd say, we don't need that big TV. You know, if you're going to have that, <laughs> you're going to get something to cover it up with or, you know, because I don't want that big monster thing like sitting in our living room. 
And um, after a few years of this, I had a, and this had nothing to do with the children. It had only to do with my husband, but I had a major turnaround where I thought, what are you doing? Like, he loves this. Why are you being so nasty about it, Pam? Like, you know, like, and I just had, I mean, I I remember the moment I was driving up to our own house. My husband was in the house watching sports on TV and I drove up and I had this moment as I walked in and I looked and I saw him and he was so happy and he was enjoying it so much. And I thought, why shouldn't he spend the money on a big TV that he can really enjoy? And I walked in the house and said that immediately. Like, I just walked in and said, you know what? We should get a really big TV. You like this. You really like this. And so I had that experience too. And um, so that was, I don't even know if I'd had my oldest, my youngest daughter yet. So that was, by the time I had kids, I was over the anti-TV thing myself. So I thought about it. And as an economist, we have this concept called diminishing marginal utility. And it means that each additional amount of something that you have has a little bit less value for the extra bit. So for example, if you have an ice cream cone with one scoop on it, that first scoop is absolutely the most delicious thing in the world. When you have a second scoop on it, the second scoop adds to your total satisfaction, but the second scoop isn't as miraculously, fabulously wonderful as the first scoop was. And the third scoop, if you get a third scoop, the third scoop isn't nearly as good as the second scoop you know, you get it because you want more, yeah. but it's not as fabulous. So if you have already had three scoops of ice cream and someone offers you a fourth, you can maybe take it or leave it. You know, at some point, mm-hmm. people's extra utility or extra benefit of having one more of something, it gets smaller and smaller as you have more and more of that thing within a certain time period, you know, within a given time period. And so that applies to everything. And that includes television And so if a kid is only allowed to watch an hour a day, another hour is worth really a lot. If they're allowed to watch two hours a day, the third hour is worth less than the second hour. If they're allowed to watch however many hours they want, they will watch until the marginal utility of another hour of TV isn't as high as the marginal utility of something else that they might want to do. But if you restrict it, then the marginal utility of one more hour of TV is pretty much always higher than the marginal utility of anything else that they might do. And so by restricting it, you create a situation where the, the level of attachment to having one more hour is extremely high. And parents will often say they just don't want to do anything else. And I'm going to say they don't want to do anything else right now. They won't want to do anything else unless they can have another hour of TV Sometimes with parents who have restrictions, even one more hour can make a big difference in what their kids decide to do. You know, one more hour can be enough to satisfy them if they've been restricted to one hour a day or TV on weekends only or something like that. Then allowing even a relaxation of the restrictions can mean that the marginal utility goes down and suddenly all these other things around them in their life have higher marginal utility than that it's all relational you know it's all it's all in in relationship to each other what you choose to do does this thing have the highest marginal utility or does that i'm going to do the thing that has the highest marginal utility so if you restrict it you create an artificially high level of marginal utility for television if you don't restrict it it'll go down that makes sense there's no i mean it's just a fact it's how humans behave 
It's yeah. the same thing with food. It's the same thing with any other, you know, it's, it's the basis a little bit for the whole idea of reverse psychology, you know, they give them a whole lot and then they won't want so much. Um, but <laughs> it's true. It's the, it's a fact of human behavior. You know, entire economic, huge economic theories are based on this kind of simple idea of, you know, it's an observation of human behavior. It's not a made up thing. Um, well, yeah, because when you're going to make a choice, you're going to, you know, evaluate the value yeah. or or the marginal utility of each and, and choose Otherwise, which one means more I, to you. I could ask, I can go, I could just ask you, so what's your favorite food? You have a favorite food and you could tell me, yes, my favorite food is, and, you know, my favorite food is spaghetti. I love spaghetti. And then I would say, did you eat anything besides spaghetti this week? And you would say, yes, you ate something else besides spaghetti. Well, if your favorite food is spaghetti, why didn't you only eat spaghetti the whole time? And your answer is probably going to be something like, well, you know, I like to have some variety too. My answer is because after you eat spaghetti two or three times in a row, the marginal utility of another meal of spaghetti is now lower than the marginal utility of something else. It's the reason that we like variety is because of the law of diminishing marginal utility. So parents create this, you know, really pretty awful dynamic in their house where they are these police who restrict TV and other things by, by restricting it at a point where the marginal utility is still really, really, really high. So, you know, my, my response to people is if you're going to restrict it, give them significantly more and then you won't have to battle. You know, the battles will get smaller and smaller as the restrictions get less and less. If they can try that, then they maybe can can come to an actual belief that no restrictions are actually okay too, because the marginal utility will go down enough that the kids will choose to do other things. Um, and if they don't, it's because the marginal utility, the benefit that they're getting out of that is so high that that's probably the best thing for them to be doing. Because doing, doing yeah, because if they're really getting that much out of it, then there's something really beneficial to them that they're really getting a lot of satisfaction out of it or the alternative is i guess that the alternatives aren't very good you know maybe you need to spice up the life around them a little bit so that the marginal utility of other things is a little higher um it's a lazy way to raise children to just say turn it off it's just being lazy it's being not creative enough to think about what else there is in their life you know if if there's a reason there's always a reason if they're choosing, if that was true, that you had no restrictions and they really did nothing else, which is what people say, they would only watch TV all day. If that was really true, then it means that there's nothing else going on in their life that's better than TV. And that's just sad. And that means that the rest yeah. of life needs to be spiced up. Um, or they really love TV. So I have a TV loving daughter. All my kids watch TV. I watch TV. We all love it talk about it a lot you know it's it's fun tv is really good now you know tv wasn't really as good back you know 20 years ago as it is these days the um tv shows were were not um the kind of long term story cycle arc kind of thing that they have now so the tv as literature i guess if you want to call it that is way higher yeah. quality now so you know when we were watching something like you know Laverne and Shirley or you know some kind of slapstick comedy thing I can see that parents might have thought that that was a bigger waste of time or something but it wasn't it was high you know it was it was 
something that the kids were getting a lot out of. And you just don't know what they're getting out of it. You're not in their brain. So one of my daughters was the one who really loved television and really watched a lot and watched the same things over and over and over and over and over again. She watched Roseanne, the Roseanne show, a lot. And she Mm -hmm. watched the Cosby show a lot. And for about a year, she watched both of those shows daily for several hours. And after about a year, one day we were driving in the car and she said, you know, the Cosbys aren't really... Everybody thinks the Cosbys are these really great parents, the Huxtables, I guess, the, uh, in the show, are yep. these really great parents, and they're really not. They're just mean to the kids. They make fun of them. They'll, like, they'll, like, ridicule them to make a joke, and they never change their minds, and they're really restrictive. And if they once say something, then the parents just have, like, it's as if the parents are, like, perfect, and the kids are, like, little brats. And on Roseanne, everybody thinks Roseanne and Dan are, like, these weird, mean parents and stuff, but... Roseanne, if she might yell and do something mean, but she'll go up and sit on the edge of the bed and say, okay, I thought about it. And, you know, they're really thoughtful and they, they really try to help their kids as much as they can. And, you know, so all this time she'd been watching these shows and she'd been doing parenting in her head, you know, like it had been all about the family relationships and she'd been doing, you know, a compare and contrast exercise in her head for the previous year. And this is an abiding interest in her. You know, she was probably 10 when this was going on, and she's 25 almost now. And she still spends a lot of her time thinking about relationships and parenting and, you know, children and development and, you know, how people treat each other and things like that. So you just don't know what it is they're getting out of it. So to to say that they're sitting there staring at a screen, I mean, nothing drives me more crazy than when parents say they're staring at the screen or they're staring at the screen like a zombie because... Their brain is actively working and learning and thinking. And just because they're not expressing it to you doesn't mean it's not happening. So, you know, um, we got so much out of television um, and still do. And, you know, we still love it. And it's been a source of, you know, great enjoyment and and fun and learning all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of TV. And, there's, there's the thing about no restrictions. Also, I, one last thing is that parents assume that if you have no restrictions, that that their kid will watch the way they watch intensely, like when they have restrictions. But as long as you have the restrictions, they'll probably always use every minute of the allowable time. And then after you you relieve them of those limits, they will probably <laughs> watch every minute of their life <laughs> for a while. But after a while, when they really are confident that they can just turn it off and turn it on whenever they want, then they will start making those kinds of choices. But so it can be a little, I mean, I get it that it can be a little freaky for parents, you know, to just think of no limits at all, because they have the experience of their kids begging and arguing and cheating. And, you know, we have another, another family that they had, they were unschoolers, they had TV limits and computer limits. And the parents bedroom was upstairs at the other end of the house and during the night the the kids would sneak downstairs and use the computer and watch television you know while the parents were sleeping and didn't know and so again you don't want to set up a situation where kids are sneaking around behind your back that's another problem or they're watching at a friend's house and they know they're not supposed to and so now they feel guilty you know and or or they're they just feel guilty that they even like it because you so obviously think it's this horrible thing 
and yet they love it. And so how are they going to grow up thinking that this thing that is so enjoyable to them and so appealing is something so awful? How are they going to trust their own sense of what's good and what's not? I know it has such a big impact, oh. doesn't it? All, just all over the place. It just really digs into their yeah. psyche even. <laughs> like, do, what if we just don't have one in the house? You know, my husband and I don't want one. So what if we don't have the TV in our house? And, you know, my answer to that is like, you know, what if you said like, what if we just don't have books in our house? What if we just don't have books? Yeah. You know, that seems so goofy now looking back that you would like just not have this fabulous technology that's so enjoyable and so rich with learning opportunities to just like not have it seems um seems really odd and and just like a a strange kind of goofy decision it seems as silly to me now (laughs) as saying we're just not going to have any books no books in our house or no music no music allowed in our house you know or no art or you know like it seems as silly as that and obviously comes out of a fear and you know i think it's a good thing to work on getting over that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a silly fear. It's a it's a fear based on believing uh, a bunch of so-called experts who measured children's or people's brain waves, you know, 30 years ago and neglected to mention that the changes in your brain that happen when you watch TV are the same ones that often happen when you meditate, you know, like so here are these people who are like meditating every day but refusing to have a TV in their house, you know, like so, um, and, and there's a lot of studies about about video games, computers, TV use, and all that stuff. And the studies, um, you know, it's I always like studies. I'm a statistician, and I think they're interesting, but they're not very good. You know, that kind of research is not very well done in general. And so mm-hmm. just to buy into it without even understanding the research that was done to quote studies or to, you know, link to papers about research that you haven't really looked into and understood is not really very good. Because if you look at your own kids and your friends, you know, unschooling friends and look at those kids, they are so obviously far from being damaged by television and video game, they are being enhanced, their lives are better. And their learning is great. And, you know, it's look at the evidence that's in front of us. And, you know, don't rely on studies that you don't even really know how they were done and who they were done on and what they really measured and you know what the circumstances of the study were because they're in general when I go and look at this kind of research I'm not impressed at all it's not very good research yeah I know it it, people seem I guess it, it takes time to get there but but they have a hard time trusting themselves they're they're still you know yeah. giving over to experts without without actually looking at it in enough detail to understand because they don't trust themselves and what they're seeing in front of them with well their and, kids. and it's I understand that because when you have a child you're filled with fear that something bad will happen or that you'll damage them or that you'll you know you yeah. not do the right thing and <laughs> you know mm-hmm. to not allow it seems almost I mean I get that but it seems like the safer route People Mm -hmm. will just say kind of exasperated, like, you know, they don't need to be watching that much. Well, that's true. They don't need it. You know, they don't need it the way they need like water every day, you know, like (laughs) they don't need it. Um, And so I get it that it seems kind of like safer to just restrict it or not have it because people are overwhelmed with the information and, and don't know how to make a decision. And, you know, the only answer to that is to use your own logic and look at your own kids and base it on your own experience 
and look around at other, again, get to know other unschooled kids so that you can see what their experiences have been. Um, I just dare anybody to look at my kids and say they were damaged by watching TV. They've, you know, they've gone to college, they've got multiple degrees, they've got careers, they're fine, you know, like, and they yeah. watched a, and still watch a ton of television. We love it. I don't mm-hmm. quite get why people think it's different than going to the theater. And we're a big theater family. I have a daughter with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in drama. You know, we're, we're very involved in the theater world. There are things on television that are better than anything you could see in a theater. There are things in theater that are better than anything you can see on television. They're, you know, they're, they're both like really fabulous, but nobody thinks there's anything wrong with taking your kid to the opera. Now you're doing it. Now you're doing the right thing. Take your kid to the ballet, take your kid to see a musical, you know, or a play. Those you're highly respected for doing that. But, you know, you know, the, whether or not so, your kid wants so when, to go. Yeah. Well, when, you know, I have a daughter who does really, really loves opera. And, you know, we had season tickets to the opera. And, you know, that sounds really impressive to people. Whoa, your daughter must be like, you know, amazing. She must be brilliant. She loves opera. But, you know, you say, well, and she loves to watch, you know, some TV show. Nobody's impressed at all, you know. But yeah. those TV shows are fabulously good, good quality, wonderful writing or just like any, like theater, like play, like opera, like ballet, they might not be fabulously good, <laughs> but there are things about them that we're enjoying and that we're getting out of them. And there's not that big of a distinction, you know, between these th- th- forms of entertainment, learning. And it's, you know, the same people that would think going to the theater is like fabulous learning and criticize television. They're just not really connecting the concepts you know they're not really putting that together very well in their own heads and so the only answer to that is think more open-mindedly about it you know don't if you hear yourself sort of repeating platitudes that you've heard you've read in some book you know then try to break out of that you know and try to think for yourself and look at your own kids and you know look at what's fun you know that fun and happiness are the best guide to whether good learning is happening (laughs) <laughs> yep. No, I, I, I love that. That that's exactly where, uh, you know, looking to their, their joy because, because that's how they get engaged. That's how they stay engaged is because they're enjoying themselves and having fun anyway. Okay. We should move on to question number six and we're going to shift okay. a little bit. Um, as a, as, as a economics and statistics professor, I'm sure you're very comfortable with math and, I uh, went to university and and practices uh, an engineer and systems developer, so I'm very comfortable with math as well. Um, but it's an area that can be challenging for some people to figure out as they explore unschooling, especially since school and the way they've probably grown up with math and the way they see math is mostly boiled down to worksheets. So we're going to have, we'll just uh, touch on this. And I have two questions for you. The first one is, uh, if you can talk about how you see learning math through unschooling. And then um, if you can maybe suggest uh, some activities for parents who are more on the math phobic side that they might enjoy with their children. Yeah, <laughs> so- it's a huge yeah, topic. just, just so, quick. So let me start saying, <laughs> I bet that you have a little math anxiety, too. And I don't think almost anybody, even those of us who did well in math and went into careers that involved a lot of math, we didn't escape it entirely. So if, if we were in a group of people, and I 
sort of like listed a bunch of numbers really fast and said, Pam, did you add those up? You might have a moment of feeling flustered, like, oh, oh, really? Like she expected me to do that in my head in front of people? Okay, I have a very quick math anxiety story, (laughs) (laughs) which is from what were grade five, maybe. So they were trying to get us to memorize uh, the timetables, right? And we were doing the three times table and the teacher had done like, he put a circle up and he, uh, the numbers, you know, uh, one to 15 or something in random order in the circle. And he would test everybody each morning. You had to say the answers for the three, three times table or whatever times tables as fast as you could. And so those of us who could go really, really fast. And then one day when we were doing the three times tables, he had us do it backwards. <laughs> But, and and most of us froze. Yeah. <laughs> what? No, no. This is the order that I know them in. <laughs> I have a very similar experience. In, in, it had to do with timetables where I remember that exact thing because suddenly I was – part of this is because I was expected at that point already. I was good at this kind of thing. And yep. so they put me on yep. the spot. And I had the same fear and – stuff of making a mistake and being shamed and stuff as anybody else has um, and had the same kinds of anxieties and can still have them. I teach economics. I have to do math in front of 30 or 40, 50 students because Mm -hmm. they'll ask questions and I'm standing up at the board with my marker in my hand and, you know, I have to stand there real quickly and multiply 0.9 times 118 or something in front of people. Mm -hmm. And I have been doing this for 30-something years. And I still (laughs) stand there and have a moment of like, God, this is, what if I get this wrong? This is so embarrassing. And so I've learned to get over that by joking about it and helping my students feel less anxious about it by myself being open about feeling anxious about it. So I turn around and go, wow, all these eyes on me and I'm trying to do arithmetic in front of you this isn't hard or anything, you know, this, like I, and, you know, I try to make a joke out of it and make them feel more comfortable and, and realize that I feel uncomfortable about it too. But we all have that. We haven't been able to escape it. Um, you know, that's, that's just in everybody. It's a, it's a, it's a level of phobia that people have can be really extreme or it can be just these little moments that we have. But, the most people, most people, you know, I, I can't speak for everywhere else, but in the United States yeah. for sure, most people have math anxiety. I would say everyone has some level of math anxiety. And a very large majority of people have enough math anxiety that it's really limiting them in some way in their lives. They 70-something percent of college students say they chose their major based on not having to do math. Um, wow. And when I ask my college students about that, they all say that. And they're, m- many of my college students want to be business majors or engineers. And they say they're changing because I'm at, a, I'm at a teaching freshman. And they say when they got there and realized how much math they needed, they're going to change their major um, wow. because they don't want to do that. So they're talking about other kinds of majors because they didn't realize how much more math they were going to have to take to do the majors that they had thought they were going to do when they entered college. 
Um, and so anyway, yes, math, math anxiety and math phobia are just epidemic. And so the first thing that I would say to unschooling parents about math is you can't probably do worse than the schools. This is the one thing that the schools are so bad at, so terrible that not doing anything at all is way better because what they're creating is a real problem. And you, by doing nothing, and by doing nothing, I mean just by ignoring the subject, pretending it doesn't exist, you know, not thinking of it as yeah. a subject. Um, by doing nothing, you'll still have a lot of math happening in your lives. And, um, you know, the, the kids are going to learn all that stuff. They're going to learn to tell time and they're going to learn to measure and they're going to learn to add and subtract. And probably at some point they'll learn multiplying because it's a shortcut for, a, for addition and it and it's, makes sense to do it that way. In fact, you might mm-hmm. be lucky enough to get the experience of a kid discovering it for themselves. And it's so fun when they get it. And they'll come in and they'll say, you know, four times eight, you know, is whatever it is. Ah, anxiety. I have to say it out loud. <laughs> they'll come in and say, wait, they'll come in and say what something is. And they'll say, that's just the same as eight plus eight plus eight plus eight plus eight. You know, they'll just like come in and tell you about it as if it's this thing they just learned that's brand new and that nobody ever had it before. That's the best thing in the world if they figure that out. You know, if they come up with that themselves, that's when mm-hmm. they really, they really know it. They really learned it. Memorizing multiplication tables is a convenient thing for some people sometimes. It depends on what you end up doing with your life. You know, sometimes it's convenient. Yeah. You know, for me, economics involves a lot of math. I'm, I do statistics, you know. It's convenient for me not to have to, like, pull out my phone and multiply on the calculator to know them. It's, yeah. a, it's nothing more than a convenience. There are a lot of things that are convenient in the world. Having anxiety and basing a whole, like, life of torturing children with math homework and things like that to make sure that they've learned this thing that's kind of convenient sometimes for some people seems really ridiculous. Um, if they're going to use it a lot, they'll pick it up. And if you're, as an unschooling parent, if your kid figures it out for themselves and comes and tells you about it, that's a really cool moment and it's really fun. And it happened to me um, once with multiplying with my older daughter and once with division with my middle daughter, where she suddenly figured out that division was just repeated subtraction. And, um, and she figured it out in a really practical way and for a reason, you know, that she had something that she was figuring out and she needed to subtract something over and over and over and over again. And, you know, that figured out that that was what division was, that you, you know, if you divide. And so getting the important thing is that they get the feeling for things, that they get the concepts, that they understand, you know, the reasons why they're doing things. And the notation and the little techniques and stuff like that can all come later. It can be all added on. But teaching math as worksheets and algorithms and just a how to do it from the beginning, it's ridiculous. It's like trying to teach kids how to read that don't know how to talk yet, you know, or don't know how to hear, you know, don't even know what language is. You know, it would be, you know, it's, it's not even sensible to try to do that. So kids can parrot back things beautifully. So they can tell you that, you know, two times three is six and three times three is nine and four times three is 12. And they can repeat all those 
And you can be really proud that your kid can memorize really well like that. It doesn't mean anything. I was in high school. I was in high school when I realized that multiplication was just a form of addition and that addition was a form of counting. And I never realized that division was, a, was repeated subtraction. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't even put that together. I knew it was the opposite of multiplying, but I didn't even really know what that meant. <coughs> and um, so you can be really, really good at doing math worksheets and taking tests and not really have a good grasp of what's going on and what you're doing at all. And I was like that. I got perfect grades in math all the way through and was, you know, excelled and didn't have a good idea of what was going on, what, what I was doing and where I would use it. It's a perfectly legitimate question to say, why do we need to know this? And, mm-hmm. and if you don't have a good answer for that, if the only answer for that is to be prepared for the next level <laughs> of math, you yeah. be ready for next year, <laughs> you know, if that's the only answer, that's a terrible answer. So what should parents be doing instead? Lots of fun things. Lots of, almost every single thing that you do in life involves math. Um, you know, every time when you do anything, when you're, whether you're doing somersaults on the floor or you're cooking or you're walking in the park or you're surfing or, you know, flying a kite or everyday life involves a lot of higher order mathematics. And we don't have to call it that. And if parents want the kids to be a little more aware of it, all they have to do is think out loud a little bit more. So that's easy. So when you walk up to the registers, just sort of think out loud and say, huh, I wonder which line we should get into. And have a little conversation with, I don't know, well, that one's moving faster, but that person has a lot of stuff in their cart. This is actual math. This isn't a joke. I'm not making this up. Um, this is This is the kind of thing that then they can think back on if later on they do go into formal math and they're solving simultaneous equations, they will be comfortable with this kind of thinking. So it's algebraic thinking that's probably, you know, the most important thing for them to experience. And it's when they're younger, they need to experience things that involve measurement, comparisons, um, seeing symmetry, um, you know, measurement of all kinds, like, you know, linear measurements, like with rulers and yardsticks or whatever you use. And, um, and, uh, volume, you know, playing in the bathtub with things that hold water. If they can get as much of that kind of experience as possible and not waste their time sitting doing worksheets, they will be way better off when they do try to put formal notation and do actual math algorithms. It'll all fall into place. It'll just be putting notation to things that they already fully understand. So that's all getting concepts down and it's all done through experience and conversation. That's are cool. You, are you there? Okay. <laughs> I, I, no, I thought I lost you for a second. Yeah. Um, then the other thing yeah. would be through the, the really, really, if you can't stand to just not do anything, the other <laughs> thing would be to play games. So card games, board games, video games, you know, uh, circle games, playing outdoors, you know, any kind of games, those all involve a lot of math. Get over the idea that math involves just numbers. Um, numbers are great. And, you know, I love numbers and, you know, I'm a statistician. <laughs> I love numbers. A lot. <laughs> but um, get over the idea that that's what math is. The numbers are notation. That's like saying the letters are language. Letters mm. are not language. Letters are things that we use to express language. You know, it's part of the tool toolkit part, yeah. the toolkit. That's what numbers are. 
Numbers are like letters. They're not the math. They're the tools that we use to express the mathematical ideas and problems and concepts. And then um, the, the one last thing I would say to moms is that please don't, um, don't, don't act like you're an idiot when it comes to math. This is the one and probably only time that I say, you know, put on an act for your kids and act like you love it because it's very bad for you to be saying, you know, I'm just terrible at math. I'm going to tell your dad, ask your dad when he gets home. Um, and because the amount of people that still believe that women and girls are not good at math, that they don't have math brains, that's still really high. That myth is still believed by so many people. And so try not to pass that on to your kids, boys or girls. It, it's not true. Um, mm -hmm. There's no difference in male and female brains that makes males better at math. And in fact, you could make the argument that males are better at math and you could make the argument that males are worse at math. There's a bigger variability. Um, so when they do standardized testing of various kinds, boys get the lowest scores. I'm talking about elementary age kids and high school kids. Boys get the lowest scores and boys get the highest scores. Girls have less vari variation. But, you know, they don't, they, there's no reason for that. It's entirely environmental. You know, it's entirely how they were raised. Yeah. And now that's, yeah. So I would, I would say that for, for moms, you know, and schooling moms, like that's one of the things you can do to help your kids is just stop acting like there's something wrong with you, um, <laughs> that you just can't do it because you could if you wanted to. And, uh, you know, parents, you know, who have a lot of math anxiety, they should try to get over it. It's like they owe it to their kids to kind of work on that. And one way to work on it is to sort of go back to the beginning and learn some more math so that you don't feel like you don't have, you know, like the confidence to answer questions. Um, but if you don't have that interest and you really don't want to do that because you have so much math anxiety or that it's uncomfortable and miserable and the whole idea of it makes you break out in a sweat, then at least don't pass on to your kids the idea that you can't do it because you're female. <laughs> That's a great point. That's a great point. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to question number eight. Um, you've been actively involved with the Homeschool Association of California's annual conference for many years. I had the pleasure of speaking uh, there a couple of years ago. Um, what are some of the benefits of going to a conference that you've seen for newer unschooling families? You mentioned um, when we were talking about dads, how great, uh, helpful that can be um, to see other families having made that choice and to talk to some of the older kids. Um so maybe you just want to quickly touch on if there's any other uh, benefits that you've experienced. And congratulations on getting Jane McGonigal <laughs> to speak this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was wonderful. Jane McGonigal is the author of Reality is Broken. It is a fabulous book about the benefits and um, future of video games. She's a video game uh, developer. Yeah. And, uh, she's just a fantastic speaker. And I think it's going to be really exciting. Um, some of the other benefits, one is conferences are just really fun for most of us. You know, they're just a really good time because there aren't, for most of us, there aren't times when we can be surrounded by other parents and kids who treat each other with such love and respect, where you don't constantly hear parents berating their children for one misstep after another. So that's a pretty wonderful um, environment to spend a little time in. And it can really give you a big boost for 
maintaining that environment in your own home. So that's, I think when my kids were younger, that was, I, I would come home from a conference just feeling so refreshed and re-dedicated um, to the idea that I wanted a family life where we treated each other that way and with, with, with so much respect for everybody and not that kind of respect where I say I demand respect, but actual respect. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I once used that word in front of a young man and he said, I hate that word. Please don't ever use that word again. And I wow. was like, what? And he said, yeah, that's what my dad says when he's about to hit me. <laughs> oh. So that's not what I meant. Um, yeah. So, so that's one thing is it's just really a, a, an invigorating kind of environment. Um, it's, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for just knowing that there are a lot of other people who care about this kind of thing and are doing the same thing so you don't feel so isolated and maybe start to question whether you're crazy because we all have bad times, you know, and we all have times where we think things aren't going well and we question whether we've done the right thing. And, you know, it can be really um, uh, helping and boosting your confidence, you know, to be part Mm -hmm. of, part of a big group doing that. And I always got new ideas and, you know, I still, I mean, my kids are grown and I'm not really an unschooling parent at the moment. Um, but I still learn new things about unschooling at every conference and a, a new way to look at it and a new insight. And so the, the amount of new learning that I did as, a, as an unschooling mom was just tremendous at every conference. Spine-tingling, wonderful, exciting learning for myself. Um, sometimes there's just the mere fact of getting to see a panel with some grown unschoolers and to see how articulate they are and how how much energy positive energy they have and how enthusiastic they are and to hear that they've chosen to go into so many different fields and you know the people these days are so lucky to have so many grown unschoolers who have done so many things and they can see the results that all these things are possible you know it's people i yeah. sometimes worry that they're they're limiting their kids by not sending them to conventional schools that they won't be able to do what they want to do and when you see all these grown unschoolers um and hear about all the things that they've chosen to do you realize that you're not limiting them you're opening up the world to them you know yeah. there there are very few things that not going to school is going to keep you from doing you know and i mean one of them is in the united states is professional football you know, there's not really very many options for, you have to kind of go to high school in order to go to college to play professional football because that's the way the professional football leagues work. They don't have their own farm teams like baseball has and other sports. Uh-huh. So if you don't go to high school and don't, then you don't get recruited for a good college, then you don't get into the um, American football pros. So there you go. If that's the <laughs> one, one thing that's important, I guess that might be one, you know, but they're not, there really aren't any others that I know of that would really require someone to, to have gone to school. That's it. So they're, they're not going to miss out on anything. Um, and that, that can be at conferences, that can be one of the big takeaways is that there's so many options that you're opening up to kids because they can, they can do so much when they're, as they get older and they can travel and, you know, not being restricted and having a lot of freedom to have made a lot of their own choices. They're often so much more ready to do things. Um, you know, my, one of my daughters went on a study abroad program and she was in Paris for a few months. This was when she was college age, not high school age. 
And um, for many of the young college students in this program, it was their first time being away from home and they spent most of their time drinking. And she was just like, I'm in Paris. <laughs> I'm not spend my time getting drunk. I'm going to spend all my time going to all the fabulous things that I can get to experience in Paris, you know. And um, But when when kids are, I think when you're at a conference, you get to see that all the options, you know, you hear, talk to lots of people and hear a lot of stories and it's it just is really exciting. On the other hand, it's not for everybody and it's, it can be kind of wild and can be kind of intense and people are very excited to be there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's super, super fun and exciting for some people and sometimes overwhelming for some people who kind of just want to go in their room and watch TV <laughs> because, yep. they're, you know, they're, they're, get tired really fast. But, you know, even if all you get to do is just go to a few talks um, and just walk around and kind of absorb the environment of a conference, I think it can just be really confidence building. That's the number one thing from a conference is just the confidence that you can gain. Like all these are normal people. They're just like me and they're doing it and I can do it. Yeah. That's a great point. And, and I really like the point that, you know, it may not be the, uh, a great fit for you, uh, or even maybe even for your kids as yeah. an, as an environment, but you know, to go there without expectations on yourself that you have to, um, become this person that, that loves all this and, and does all this to, uh, you know, understand yourself enough to, like you said, maybe take in a few talks, maybe walk around and, and be okay with, with how it works for you and how it fits well for you. Yeah. Um, question number nine, uh, and you've touched on this a little bit too. We've had some great conversations. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, all of your, uh, daughters, all three of them chose to go to college, you know, maybe starting, uh, with as a rec center concept at age 13, taking a few classes. Plus, as you said, you teach and you see lots of school kids as well in your classes. Um, can you speak a little bit about the advantages that you've seen, um, in going to college? from unschooling? Oh, the, the advantages of going to college from unschooling are huge. Um, school kids come to college burned out, absolutely just not interested in learning almost at all. There are even the best of the students that come to college from high school are tired of it. They're just wanting to go through the motions, take the classes they have to take, get through it. They're not in a class with an interest in learning very much. It's um, it's more extreme than I can even express. Um, they they will do anything to just get the grade and get out of there, and so and I'm talking about the you know good mediocre poor students. All of them have the same attitude. That is just understood uh, as being a normal attitude for a college student. There is yeah. almost no relish for learning. Nobody walks into a classroom with on the first day with just like ah. I've been wanting to learn more about economics and <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. The best you can hope for is that they're willing to learn and that they're glad to learn, but they're not mm -hmm. excited about it. They're not eager. It's not the reason they're there. I had one of my best students this semester, um, young man, very, very intelligent. He just, he walked me out to the parking lot one night and he was just like, I just want to apologize. You know, I'm, I'm way smarter than I look in your class. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I said, so, and he goes, he goes, 
I just have so many other things going on in my life. And all I'm doing in this class is the bare minimum to get through it. And that's what I'm just doing in college. And he said, I know that's what I'm doing. And, you know, maybe that's wrong. But, you know, I just, it's not what I really want to do, but I need the degree. And I mean, he just flat out openly admitted it. And that's like the best you can hope for in a college student. My, My kids and all of the other unschoolers I know who went to college were somewhat disillusioned about other humans because when they got there, they thought they were going to this institution of higher learning, you know, like, and what they found out was that the other students were not very interested in learning. And not only that, to some degree, resented them for being so interested and thought they were odd. Yeah. Um, the teachers loved them <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> we're just like crazy about them. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but they felt like the other students, I have heard many stories of unschooled kids coming home to their parents and saying, I don't get it. Like, it's like they have some kind of brain damage. They just don't want to learn. They're not interested. They just want to just get through, go through the motions and do what they have to do to get the grade. So there's a, there's a huge distinction between these unschooled kids and kids who have gone to school. And it's noticeable. And I can tell, I have had a few in my class who I didn't know because I live in a place where there's a lot of unschoolers, you know, and I don't know them all. And um, I have had a few kids who have, you know, sat in my classroom and asked questions and had shining eyes who you could tell were really happy to get their questions answered and things like that. And I would chat with them later and go, so where'd you go to school? Oh, I didn't go to school. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it was obvious. It was very obvious. And my my kids made friends with a couple of people in um, college. And, of course, the, in college, nobody asks you, like, much about high school or going to school. So a lot of times they would make friends with people. and They wouldn't even know that they hadn't gone to school or, you know, that just doesn't mm-hmm. come up. It's not. And my kids made friends with a couple of people that they only found out. And it, they kind of just gravitated toward each other and, and made friends. And this happened several different times where it turned out later they got to talking, went, wait, you were homeschooled? So was I. Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, like, so they were, they were even kind of more attracted to these other kids who didn't go to school um, because they were the other kids who seemed alive in a classroom, you know, and those were the ones they wanted to be hanging out, hanging out with and stuff. So that happened. Um, my kids loved college for the most part. Um, they they thought of college as a place where there were people who were paid to help them. My daughter, one of my daughters came out. Roya came out of her first English class. I went to pick her up, and she came and got in the car, and she jumped in the car and was so excited and said, "I just can't believe there's somebody who's paid to read what I write and critique it." <laughs> you know, because she liked to write. She was a writer, yeah. and um, you know, mom wasn't that ever critical enough. <laughs> Yeah, and she yeah. wanted that criticism, you know. Um, so they they really liked it for the most part. They thought they thought there was a lot of really stupid, you know, red tape and rules and bureaucracy, and teachers were awful sometimes. And um, you know, they 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 saw all that. They saw silly stuff, and they saw teachers who didn't care, and they saw teachers who weren't very nice. And but overall, the the level of resources that were available in college and the people that were there for them to talk to and get help from was fabulous for them. They really, really liked it. Um, and they used it to the maximum extent, you know, like they, 
they got involved in everything. They went to everything at the college. You know, they'd go to the, you know, everything going on at the college. They they would keep up with it and they knew about it. Two of mine, oddly, joined sororities, <laughs> which was oh. unexpected. <laughs> And um, got really, really involved and are still involved as alumni with their sororities and um, found, a, you know, really enjoyed that and really got a lot out of it. And, of course, I didn't know. I didn't know what sororities were like. I didn't know that they were philanthropic <laughs> organizations. And, mm. you know, that's what my kids got really involved in, all of the philanthropy work of the sororities and um, and had a great time. So, you know, overall, I think there were just college offered them lots and lots and lots of opportunities to do a lot of things all in kind of a centralized place with people who were paid to help you do them. So that's, that's how they experienced it. Well, that's a great way of looking at it. Too. I remember one time Roya telling me that her fellow students in her, in a, she was in a program and fellow students were asking her repeatedly, like, how do you get such high grades? How do you always get such high grades? And she finally kind of exasperatedly turned around and said, stop worrying about your grades all the time and just learn. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Yeah, Like, like, I don't think about my grades and I get high grades because I do all the work and I'm into it and I'm enthusiastic and I, you know, I do more than what the teachers ask. I read, you know, like I, I watch things. I'm. You know, I, well, yeah, I think that's something that I, through, all through school, they're trained just to focus on the curriculum, right? Because yeah. that's just where they'll get their marks and the marks is what they need. And, and it, it becomes about the marks and the grades, not about the topic and the learning. Yeah. Very early on in their career. Well, unfortunately, very early. Yeah. 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 No, at pretty much at four or five years old at this point. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I know. All right. Now, question number 10. Looking back now, what for you has been the most valuable outcome from choosing unschooling with your family? The close relationships that we have. Absolutely. No other thing could come close to that. There is nothing more important than relationships. That's it. That's it. Yep. So we didn't no. become, we didn't go through awful teen years where we battled. We didn't go through, like, we don't have that kind of thing where the kids are like, yeah, I like my family, but I like them 3,000 miles away. You know, mm-hmm. just don't have that kind of in, in relationships. You know, like I said, my kids, they talk to each other constantly. I, I hear from them every day. I see them frequently. Uh, you know, our lives are still as, you know, completely like fun and intertwined and, you know, but the most fun we have is when we're all together. And um, so that, that kind of relationship is the best part. That's awesome. That's yeah. a great place to end it too. Uh, I, 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 I'm hesitant because, because that's exactly the, you know, if someone asks me what, what's the biggest outcome, the relationships, because those are the things that also last a lifetime. Those are the things that bring you the joy. Um, you know, the, that that's the whole point in the end. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, I want to exactly, exactly. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Pam. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed diving into unschooling with you. I love hearing your perspective on things. I've loved reading your perspective on things for years. So it's been great to have you on here. Um, and I wanted to ask, where's the best place for people to connect with you online in case they'd like to learn some more? Well, I have a little blog 
that I don't write on very much, but it's got a little bit of cool stuff on it. And that's called learninghappens.wordpress.com. It's got some stuff about unschooling math and basic principles of unschooling. And it's got a whole bunch of um, fun, super easy games to play because I really like games where you can just pull it out of your pocket at the moment when you're like waiting in the doctor's office and things like that. So I have a whole lot of games that involve nothing but some coins or pencil and paper, things like that, that I have on there that are really fun. So that might be cool. Um, And then, you know, some other stuff that I've written here and there. And then um, the Radical Unschooling Families Facebook group and the Unschooling Mom-to-Mom Facebook group are the two places that I am. I'm I'm posting more on the Unschooling Mom-to-Mom group. Um, so that's probably the, the number one place where they can find me. And, and, and it's mom uh, to mom conference. With the number two. With the number two. Yeah. And, the, <laughs> and those spaces. Um, HSC conference in California. It's in San Francisco at the end of July, beginning of August every year. I'm always there, always speaking. And then, um, I'll be speaking in Phoenix at the free to be conference this coming September. And in Chicago at the Unschoolers Platform in February. (laughs) (laughs) That takes nerve. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) I thought it was going to be in the spring, and I'm pretty sure February doesn't count as spring in Chicago. (laughs) um, Anyway, I'll be finding a way to brave the snow. (laughs) uh, That's terrific. Hopefully. Okay. There and yeah. um, I think that's it for right now. I don't have any other plans, but you know, well, I'll make sure that I include links to all that stuff in the show notes. So if anyone uh, is looking for that, they'll be able to find it. And thanks very much again for uh, talking with me today, Pam. Hey, thank you. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey, and be sure to check out the wonderful archive of earlier podcast episodes. The conversations never go out of date. And you can find more information about my books, my Patreon community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit at my website, livingjoyfully.ca. Have a great day.